All right, so turn with me, Luke chapter 18. We're going to pick up at verse 18, and the goal is to make it down to the end of the chapter. Come in need and desperation. And we've already seen a little bit of this, haven't we? In the first half, if you can recall, um, we saw people coming with expectation, that persistent widow. Um, We saw the contrast in uh, Luke 18, verses 9 through 14, between that prideful Pharisee that was so glad he wasn't like the sinner that was pounding and beating his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me. And the Lord gave commentary, says, that one went home justified. That one went home right with my father. So we see people coming to him. And he tells us how to come. He gives us examples. He gave the example of the, of the little children and how they came. He says, this is exactly the way uh, you need to come. This is how you enter into the kingdom is by coming as a child. And um, just that full dependence and surrender um, to the Lord. As we pick up here in verse 18, we're going to catch a glimpse of, uh, I think, yeah, two more, two more encounters that Jesus has. Be some teaching in between there of how people came to him. And so, first of all, let's read verses 18 through 23, where we find that when we come to him, there needs to be a surrender all heart and mind. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, and you can just kind of almost see him grabbing his beard, kind of holding it, just looking at the guy. So why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to inherit the kingdom of God. So we're going to talk about surrendering all. He comes and he asks this question of how to receive eternal life. So the first thing I want to note before we even get into the details of of the discussion is that there is eternal life. Anybody glad about that? I mean, this is, this is a possibility. This is a reality that is from the Old Testament to the New Testament is discussed. We can walk not just in this life with God, but we can walk in the next life with the Lord as well. How, what a blessing, what a joy it is to do this. So the Bible teaches that man is an eternal being. And because we are eternal beings, we will live forever. You will either live forever in the presence of the Lord, which is referred to as eternal life, or you will live forever separated from the presence of the Lord in a place of punishment. And this is something that I believe motivated the Lord to come, knowing the great consequences and the great uh, punishment that awaited man who was separated from God. It motivated him to send his son to die on the cross Right? 
the, the, the one who is everlasting came and he died that he might give everlasting life. So there are two dimensions of this eternal life. Matthew 25 verse 46 says, And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. Now I realize it says eternal, but it's the it's, it's exact same Greek word. So we just the, the translators wrote it just to give us, I don't know, a little variety or whatever. But just so that you know, as you look at everlasting and eternal, it is the exact same Greek word. As a matter of fact, even uh, the preposition um, where it says into everlasting um, punishment, but the righteous into eternal life, um, even that preposition is exactly the same. And so... There is a, a question that is in the minds of some of whether or not a person who does not receive Jesus Christ as their Savior will actually live forever in a place of punishment. And um, they would say that people may suffer for a time. Um, some would say maybe they don't suffer all, that when you die, that's just the end of it. And there is no eternal aspect of uh, the person who does not come to the Lord. So their life ends, and all they know is, you know, their birth, uh, the dash, and then their death, and that's, that's all there is. And a lot of what motivates this is uh, the idea, is like, well, I can't bear the thought of somebody that God would punish people. Now listen, there is nothing pleasant to think about punishment and chastisement. I mean, if there was anything pleasant in it, I'm sure the Lord wouldn't have sent his son. It is so terrible that he was willing to send his son to die on the cross to rescue those who would put their faith and trust in him. But there is some that are going to go into everlasting life, and that's what this ruler is asking about, and there are some that will go into everlasting punishment. So when you look at the, the, this verse here, some will say, that this doesn't happen. But look at this. Jesus is contrasting everlasting uh, life at the end with that which proceeds, which is everlasting punishment. So whatever that word everlasting, ionius in, in the Greek, whatever that word means in the first half of this verse is going to mean in the second half. Whatever it means in the second half is going to mean in the first half. Otherwise, what a confusing way to communicate. It's to use the same exact word and the same kind of stru uh, grammatical structure to communicate two different truths. We don't do that. Well, that's not how we communicate with each other. If, we're, if it's going to sound similar, we'll, we'll throw some other words in there and some modifiers so that people know that it's not the same exact punishment. But this is what we do find here, is that we have no question that the righteous will go into eternal life, and there should be no question that there will be everlasting punishment. In Mark chapter 9, verses 47 through 48, it says, If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And so the idea here with that, that last phrase, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, you get this sense of an ongoing state. And so it's an ongoing punishment, just like Jesus said there in Matthew 25, verse 46. Another passage, 
speaking of that continual judgment that will come upon those who do not receive and do not find eternal life, is Revelation 14, 9 through 11. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead, forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends for just a little while. No, it doesn't say that actually, does it? It says forever and ever. And they shall have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image. Whoever receives the mark of his name. So here in this context, it's speaking about a future event, but it's, 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 it takes us out even beyond that to this time of eternal punishment. And it becomes very clear here in the book of Revelation, as it is in these other places, that it is an ongoing state for those who do not have eternal life. Jesus spoke of the inhabitants of Sodom who were judged in Abraham's day as having a future day of judgment. So if there's a future day of judgment, they must be in a state of not being annihilated or being wiped out. So Matthew eleven twenty three 23 through 24 says, And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So there's a future judgment that Jesus speaks about of even those who were judged in a, a, a temporal sense in, in, their, you know, in their lifetime, and he speaks of Sodom. And so they were destroyed in the past, but there remains a future judgment. So they are in being held in a state, conscious and aware, where one day they will experience that final judgment of the Lord. And this is illustrated for us in a passage we studied just a couple of weeks ago. Well, yeah, a couple of studies ago. It's been a couple of months ago since we were there. But Luke 16, verse 24, the rich man and Lazarus. Then he cried, the rich man, and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. So the Bible speaks of those who have died in an unrighteous state in Luke chapter 16. Jesus is the one that is telling us, and he tells us that the rich man who was not righteous and did not have faith, he is in a place of torment where those that were judged in the day of Sodom also are awaiting a final day of judgment that will put them into an eternal state of being judged. Now, you can go through all of those passages and you can walk away and say, I still don't think it's going to last forever. The thinking usually goes like this. Well, after that judgment, then it's all over. But what's, if, what's the judgment? I mean, if they're being held and waiting for judgment and then they're judged and they're immediately, you know, just they're snuffed out, they're annihilated. Doesn't that kind of sound like more like relief than it does judgment? I, I just put, put it this way. If you have been, you know, this, you know, let's say you were born in Sodom, you were one that was judged. And so for the last, whatever, 5,000 years, 4,000 years, 
I don't know what it's been, for, about 4,000 maybe, 5,000 years, you have been in the same kind of torment that we just read about in Luke chapter 16. And you know that when you're brought before the judgment of God that you're going to be annihilated and you're going to go out of existence. Does that sound like a good thing or a bad thing? Well, if I'm voting, come on judgment, if that's the way it works. Because then it will be completely annihilated and I won't be in the state that the rich man was in begging for Lazarus to come and just tip uh, to dip the tip of his finger in water so that he might have some relief. Do you follow that? You see that? So those that want to say this, they're arguing that a, essentially what they'll say is a good God could not do that, which I think is a really dangerous place to go. It's a really dangerous place when we begin to question the goodness and the fairness and the love of the Lord. I understand this is a difficult topic. It's difficult Maybe not for you because you're going to go and be in the presence with the Lord. But we think of friends. We think of family. We think of people that have died and have gone into this state. And it is a serious state. But some will say, well, I just, I don't think that. And I'll, I'll ask, I always ask the question, well, do you think they're in a place of judgment and torment right now? Yes. So what you're saying is it is a just God could torment somebody for 6,000 years, but he couldn't do it for 30,000 years for eternity? I mean, 6,000 years is a long time to be in torment, don't you think? And so, it's, to me, it's just it's an argument that breaks down. Do you know what it says in Revelation? When um, the angels in heaven is looking at the judgments that are coming upon this earth, heaven says, true and righteous are your judgments, O Lord. And so here's what I do, and here's my counsel to you. When you look at a judgment of God that seems too much or too hard, you got to remember who's the one that is judging. And that when you have the perspective of heaven, your finger will not be in the face of the Lord. Your hands are going to be left, lifted, and you will see his beauty, and you will see his grace, and you will see his justice, and you will raise your hands and say, true and righteous are your judgments. Because he is not a capricious God that's looking to snuff people out. He sent his son to die on the cross. So there is the hope of eternal life. And eternal life, when contrasted with everlasting punishment, becomes a thing to be desired and to be sought after. And that's why this man is coming and asking. Because it's a super important question. And if it is... A question in your mind, then let's follow, follow along. Let's look at this passage. In verse 19, he speaks to him, and, and he says, um, why do you call me good? So in verse 18, he calls him good teacher. But in verse 19, Jesus comes and says, why do you call me good? Psalm 25 eight says, good and upright is the Lord, therefore he teaches sinners in the way. Isn't that an interesting verse? Isn't that an interesting verse? Because here comes a sinner asking a question, and he calls him good, and he's going to give him instruction, and he's going to reject it. Just an interesting cross-reference. Or Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. The Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. And this man is going to miss out on this blessedness because he's not going to be able to trust 
the counsel and the wisdom that Jesus is giving to him. The man uses an appropriate title for Jesus, for he is good because he is God. But among the rabbis, they would never refer to somebody as good. And so it was a shocking thing to hear this one come and say good, because this was a title that was reserved for the Lord. And so he uses the title, but I think in Jesus' thought, he's like, do you really agree with what you just called me? Do you know who you're talking to? I mean, and I don't mean that like in a sarcastic, do you know who you're talking to? But just like, are you aware of the one who you just called good? Why do you call me good? Let's think about that for a second. There's only one that's good, and that's God. So am I still good? I mean, this is what Jesus is provoking him to think. And of course, the answer is absolutely. So to me, I believe Jesus is speaking to this guy because he's using the right language, but he does not understand the language he's using. And you all can raise your hand along with mine as people that have done that. You know, oh, sovereign God, you know, Lord, which means master, which means in charge of everything. Lord, no, there's no way, Lord. (laughs) Do we understand the word Lord? Do we understand sovereign? Do we understand wonderful counselor? Do we understand when we say God is love? Do we understand the ramifications of the names by which we call the Lord? I think there are plenty of times where what's happening in our life is not consistent with what we're declaring. I mean, think about the worship songs that we sing. Come on, has anybody besides me ever been convicted by the worship songs we sing? It's like, oh Lord, I'm gonna sing it, but you gotta help me. Because I know that I've got to do a better job living like that and acknowledging you like that. So this guy's coming in and, and he uses a title that was reserved for God, which is really clear as, as Jesus speaks to him. He says, no one is good but God. So he's, he's trying to lead them into a place. This man came to Jesus seeking eternal life, and he believes he's done a pretty good job, right? Jesus begins to talk to him. Jesus, in this process, is seeking to bring the man to a place of humility. If you need a word picture, just go back into verses 9 through 14 and think of the man that's beating his chest and saying, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because this man, while not antagonistic like many of the scribes and Pharisees, this man comes in a very respectful way to the Lord. But he's not in the place where he recognizes his desperate need for Jesus. That's why he can walk away very sad. So he's trying to bring him to the place of humility. He's trying to show him the thing that really is the hang-up in his life. And so he says, sell everything. (laughs) And he doesn't like it. He's not buying it. Um, he, He claims to have kept much of the law from his youth. Yet there was another law that Jesus could see that was holding him guilty. What is the one thing? Actually, let me, even before I get to that question, um, well, no, I'll put the question, what is the one commandment that just is interestingly left off here? You know, and, and you got 10 commandments. We have the commandments, but there's a commandment that he leaves off. So the first, the, the 10 commandments are broken into two groups. And the first half pertains 
to your relationship with God. You'll have no other God, no carved image. You won't take the name of the Lord in vain. You'll keep the Sabbath day. And and then the second uh, part pertains to our relationship with others. Honor parents, shall not murder, commit, adultery, still lie. And what's the last one? Covet. Love of money. And when you look at this, it's like the Lord is setting him up because he's talking and he says, well, how about all these things? And he says, well, I have done them all. I kept them from my youth. And um, verse 22, Jesus says, you still lack one thing. It should have been obvious to him, a ruler, what the one thing is that Jesus forgot to say, have you done it was covetous. I mean, can you see the gentleness by which Jesus is seeking to lead this man to a right understanding of who he is, that he is God in the flesh right in front of him, he is good, and that his issue is covetousness. And so he can't see it, he doesn't see it. So in verse 22, he tells him, you still lack one thing, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, is he saying that if you get rid of all of your material possessions, that's how you inherit eternal life? No. What he's saying is, your hang-up is money, my friend. The thing that's going to keep you and hold you from receiving me and following me is your love of money. Now, clearly, the Lord has a, a, a notebook on this man. He knows everything about him, and we're not getting all the details of him, but the one who came to seek and save the lost is speaking to one who is lost. And he knows the issues. He knows what's going to keep him. So he's not offering salvation by an offering. He's saying, you're held by money, and you're never going to have eternal life until you deal with this covetousness. In other words, my friend, you're a sinner, and you think you're okay, but you're not. You lack one thing. And, and I, I would imagine, it's just pure speculation on my part, but a ruler, a leader in Israel, talking about something like the Ten Commandments, when Jesus forgot to mention the last one, you know he was thinking, you forgot one. And when he said you lack one thing, I'm sure it all came together, and Jesus, in case he was missing it, says, you need to get rid of your stuff. Because your stuff owns you and it holds you and is keeping you back. So what did this guy do? He walks away sad. Because he had a lot of money. He had a lot of things. He possessed a lot of riches. Or did the riches possess him? He didn't possess the riches. The riches possessed him. If you follow what I'm saying. He was held by these things. These are the things that would not allow him to come to the Lord. He was unwilling to surrender what? All. He was unwilling to lay it all down. And if we're going to come to Jesus, Jesus has already said, if you want to follow me, then you got to take up your cross. you got to deny yourself. And you got to follow me. This man was not about to deny himself. He was not about to let go of those things. Isn't it sadly ironic that this man was unwilling to part with temporal riches in, in order to gain eternal riches? He thought what he had in his hand would be better than what this good teacher was offering him. 
But he's not the only one that's made this mistake. Many have walked away at the offering of Jesus Christ. There may be a person that you're thinking about right now that you've shared with, you've pleaded with, you've prayed with, you have cried over, you've begged the Lord to redeem and save, and yet they still don't see the beauty of the good one. They don't trust him. They're unwilling to part with that one area of their life that is holding them. And so we must live surrendered lives. Um, this man walks away and is, does not follow the Lord. The story continues on. It leaks, on, it leaks into the next verses in a sidebar conversation and, um, with people asking another question. And uh, so verses 26 through 30, we, le- we learn that there's great reward in following Jesus. I mean, this guy walked away because he thought he was giving up the reward. So the question is there. And those who heard it said, who then can be saved? But he said, These things, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter said, see, we have left all and followed you. We've surrendered all. And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. In other words, this guy just blew it. This guy walked away. He gave up much more in this life and in the life to come. He couldn't see it. He didn't have the faith. He didn't understand. Or maybe he did understand, which makes it all the more tragic, doesn't it? If he understand and understood who Jesus was, and then he still walked away because he was so possessed by his riches, how tragic is that? And so Peter, never short of a comment or a question, says, well, what about us? We gave up all to follow you. Now, the interesting thing is when the Lord called all of them, he didn't say give it all away. He just said come. And the nets kind of went to mom, dad, family, friends, whatever. They were fishermen. And we find out later that they're back fishing. So he didn't tell them to go sell everything. So this isn't Jesus' only way of dealing with people. Nor is it to be interpreted that anybody who has a lot of money should give it all away. That's what greedy poor people say, okay? That's not an accurate interpretation of what's being spoken here. Um, But the promise is you're going to have great reward. This guy left thinking he was give it all up. But the reality is, Peter, you're going to have many many, uh, times more in this, whatever you give up, and you're going to have much more in the life to come. And that's a promise. But do we believe it? I mean, I think sometimes it's easier for us to hold on to the second half of the promise that we'll have many times more in the age to come, the eternal life. But what seems to be a little bit more difficult to grab onto is that we'll have many times more in what? This present time. I don't see how. Well, I guess that's where faith comes in, right? I guess that's where we, we listen to the good teacher. That's where we allow ourselves um, to be instructed by him. Um, just going back to those verses I referenced in Psalm, uh, the Psalms, Psalm 25a, good and upright is the Lord, therefore he teaches sinners away. 
Oh, taste and see the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts him. There's a blessedness. And he talks about this blessedness for those who trust him and follow him. You know, really the only thing that we should say when the Lord speaks to us is what? Yes, Lord. Speak, Lord. Your servant listens. I'm ready to get up and do whatever you would call me to do. I'm not going to be here to negotiate it and, you know, argue with you about it. Lord, you tell me what to do, and I will do it. And so, knowing there is great reward in following the Lord should help us in those things that maybe we feel like we're going to give up. You're going to, you know, move away. You're going to move away from your friends. You're going to move away from your family. You know, you're going to give up your possessions. But the Lord says, don't worry, you're going to be much more blessed in this present life. And if in any way what has held you back from following the Lord and answering the call of God upon your life is because you are afraid of giving up more, then we are like that rich young ruler, aren't we? Now, maybe we understand who Jesus is and we have salvation, but as the followers of the Lord, we're holding back and we're not diving in completely. What a promise. Do you know it to be true? Have you experienced the fullness and the blessedness? Jesus talks about this all the time. I've come that you might have life and that you might have it what? More abundantly. You know, he who seeks to save his life is going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you're going to find it. I mean, this is a repeated theme of Jesus' teaching. Because he called them to radicalness. He called them to just lay it all on the line and go for it and trust him to supply what he is calling him or what, you know, and, and walk out what he's calling him to do. Now, don't just go do something he's not calling you to do. But if he's calling you to do it, the most dangerous thing you could do is not answer that call. Let's move on. Verses 31 through 34. Then he took the 12 aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And all things that, were, that are written by the prophets, think of Isaiah 53, think of Psalm 22, concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Boy, that's just, I mean, it can't be any clearer, can it? We're going to Jerusalem, and this is what's going to happen to me. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. They did not know the things which were spoken. So he says it pretty plainly, but they cannot. Their mind has a different type of Messiah in mind. They have, if you will, the second coming Messiah. Right? All those prophecies in the Old Testament and talking about the Lord standing on the Mount of Olives and is splitting in two, you know, he comes riding in a donkey and then he, you know, he brings all the nations to, to judgment. That, that they, they're thinking, we can say it now, and you know, at this time there was no such thing in, the, in their thinking or the division of Scripture in first and second coming, but we can stand back now knowing that he came once and he said he's coming again and what he's going to do in the second coming. They're, they're thinking of second coming Jesus. First coming Jesus, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Psalm 16, speaking of his resurrection, and many other passages, they can't compute that. They don't expect the King of kings and Lord of lords, the, 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 the seed of David, 
You know, the one who's wonderful counselor and the, you know, the government will be upon his shoulders. They cannot conceive that he is going to die. But he is going to die. And he's telling them. He's telling them exactly what's going to happen. He gives them the detail of what he's going to endure. Now, the, the, the connection, contextually, I mean, it's, it's not fully um, laid out here, but it's like, what must I do to have eternal life? Well, you got to deal with the thing that holds you and keeps you back from following me. you got to surrender all. And then, he, Peter, then Peter says, yeah, well, we surrendered all. He goes, and you're going to be blessed. You're going to have eternal life. And then he immediately talks about his crucifixion. It's in the context of the questions and discussion about eternal life. And it is through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection that we find eternal life. We put our faith and our trust in that, and we're going to get that faith element in the closing story. And so it's not laid out like it is in the book of Romans, you know, as a, 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 like a very clear line of instruction. But if you look at the context of it, you can see the ground is being tilled. The rocks are being turned over. The soil is being made ready. What must we do to have eternal life? Well, you know, remember that guy who didn't want to follow? We followed all. And then Jesus talked about this. And then we're going to read about uh, blind Bartimaeus in just a moment. Jesus had full knowledge of what was going to happen to him when he came up to Jerusalem. He was going to be mocked. He was going to be insulted. When they arrested him, they were going to address him in a purple robe. They were going to put a reed in his hand as a staff, and they were going to get thorns to represent a crown, and they were going to put it on his head. They mocked him. Oh, king of kings, oh. You're the king of the Jews, huh? Well, a king needs a robe, which the Gospels tell us that robe was was put on him after he had been scourged. And so there's just this, you know, this mockery that they are, they are walking through. The soldiers would, would bow down and they would hit him and mocking him, him being blindfolded and say, all right, prophesy, who hit, who hit you? You know, interesting thing is when they said, prophesy, who hit you? Peter was out in the courtyard denying them and a prophecy was being fulfilled when they were mockingly saying, prophesy, tell us something about what's going to happen. When Jesus hung on the cross, they cried out and said, he saved others, he can't save himself. They mocked him. Can you imagine the restraint that must have been exerted by him, by the Father in heaven to hold back the armies of, of heaven? Just let it, just, just, just crack the door and we're out. I mean, but the, the restraint that's there as all of this is going upon him, is happening to him. He said he'll be mocked, he'll be insulted, he'll be spit upon. They would walk up to him and spit right in his face. One of the most disrespectful things you can ever do to a person is to spit in their face. It's not the most painful thing. I mean, everything that we're going to read about, you know, the crucifixion, that's the painful part. But this is a complete disrespect for a good teacher. What a sight he must have been. A beaten face, swollen, beard ripped out, blood running down his face from the thorns that were placed on it. And 
the spit that would have been hanging from his beard and his eyelashes. I, what? I mean, this, is the, this is the king. And Jesus is like, this is what's going to happen to me. This is going to happen to me. And then they're going to scourge me. Which, here's what you, if you can only remember one thing about the scourging, know this, it's not a whip. A whip would just be leather, you know, uh, straps. And that would be bad enough. But a scourge was a short, um, a short whip that had bone and um, glass and other sharp objects um, lashed to the end, tied and fixed to the end of those leather straps. So when it came down, it was, it was doing much more than putting welts. It was literally, I'm not going to go into the details of it, so you'll be all right. But I mean, it was, it was ripping flesh off of his body or anybody that was scourged. So often, as we talked about this, you know, um, at other times, a person would die of a scourge because the scourge for the Romans was a way to elicit a confession. Remember when Paul was arrested on the Temple Mount and they wanted to find out what he did? What was their solution to find out what he did? Let's scourge him. And that's who said, time out, Roman citizen. I don't think you're supposed to do that. Are you supposed to do that? And like, oh, no. But the scourge was meant to get a confession. It would get, it would, you know, it was a way to solve the problems of, of uh, the, you know, rebellion. They would get names. They would, they would torture a person. And then he says, and then they're going to kill him. And of course, Jesus died. He doesn't speak of the exact way, but we know that he died there on the cross. And um, it was meant to be a slow, lingering death designed to inflict as much pain and misery upon them as he as he can. But he doesn't leave it there. He says, and rise again. He's going to rise. I'm going to rise from the dead. Now, right over their head. I mean, they didn't get it. Luke is, is pretty honest with this. They didn't have a clue that these things were being referred to by Jesus. But he did suffer, and he did die, and he did rise from the dead. But why did he go through all this? Because our sin was being placed upon him. The soul that sins will surely what? Die. He had to die if we were to have eternal life. If we're going to live in his presence forever and miss the eternal punishment, then the eternal one had to be punished for us. And so when he was being punished, he wasn't there and, and suffering and dying for us. I mean, for himself and his, his sins. He was sinless. He was suffering for us. For the things that we've done. For our crimes. For our shame. For every, as Billy Graham says, for every dirty, filthy thing a man has ever done was laid upon him and it was attached to him. That was affixed to him and then the judgment came. Now we know that the Romans are the ones that crucified him. They put the nails through his hands, through his feet. They scourged him. They did all of this stuff. He was, the Gentiles are the ones who did this, but he was delivered up by the Jews. But, who was the one that was pouring out his wrath upon Jesus? Who was it? It's the Father. Read Isaiah 53 again. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. So God's judgment against sin, and therefore against us, was satisfied as he judged his own son the wrath of God was, was satisfied. So now, 
because sin's been dealt with, now we can receive the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. To him went our sin, to us comes righteousness. And so he died completely for every sin, and there's no sin that is not covered. But we must come to him like the rich young ruler did, but not walking away sorrowful. We need to end our interaction with the Lord as we see in verses 35 through 43, and this is where we're going to end our study tonight. We see the power of faith. Then it happened. And okay, so before we read this, um, and I've talked about this a lot through the Gospels um, and other studies too, and that, you know, a, a Greek, uh, in the Greek, there are, different, there are verbs and there are different kinds. There's past tense, future tense, and you know, all kinds of tenses actually. But you know, in the past tense, there's two kinds. There's an aorist, which think of it as like a, I'm simplifying it, but think of it like a dot on a timeline. Boom, a moment in time. That's the aorist. But there's another type of past tense, which is an imperfect, which speaks of ongoing action in the past. So the aorist would be like taking a single picture and showing somebody, look, look what happened here in the past. You have a single shot. But if you were to show somebody the video and you were to show them the phone and would say, hey, watch the video, it's an ongoing action of something happened in the past. How long did it go on? I mean, context is going to tell us. You don't know. You gotta, that's an interpretive thing. But that's what an imperfect is. So as I read this, I'm, I'm going to give you, there's, let's see, one, two, three, four. There's five imperfect verbs. And you might want to just, I don't know if you, I, I love making these notes in, in my Bible, but it's, you're going to, you'll feel the, um, the motion of this passage. You're going to feel kind of what's going on. And so there are five of these imperfect verbs. And I'll begin to read and note them as we go. Then it happened as he was coming near Jericho that a certain blind man sat by the road. Sat is your first imperfect verb. And hearing a multitude passing by, he asked, asked is your second, what it meant. So they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was, Nazareth was passing by. And he cried out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then those who went before him warned. That's your third imperfect verb. That he should be quiet. But he cried out. Cried out is your fourth imperfect. All the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he come near, he asked him saying, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed him. There's your first, fifth imperfect verb. Glorifying God and all the people when they saw it gave praise to God. Here we see the power of faith. This guy, I mean, I, I can't say this emphatically, but I think what we're trying to get is the idea this guy was really annoying. This was a desperate, loud, annoying guy who didn't even know which direction to be yelling towards. You know what I'm saying? He hears the crowd. He's on the way. They're coming up at feast time. They're coming up at a time when the pilgrims were there. There were two main routes to come into Jerusalem. One was to come, you know, through Samaria. 
Most of the Jews didn't do that. They would come the southern route, so they come down to Jericho, down by the Jordan River, and then they climb some 3,000 feet up from the Dead Sea. So Jericho's like 800 and something uh, feet below sea level, and they go up to like, I don't know, Jerusalem's like around 34 or something. You figure it out. Or he climbs 3,400 feet. But this was, this was been a, a path that there was a lot of people there. So if you were a beggar, this is like, you know, it's, it's, it's the best time of the year for you. Because everybody's coming up to the feast. So there's lots of people there. The, the road's busier than it would have ever been on, on a normal day. And so they're coming up from Jericho. They're down there in the City of Palms, right? They're in the, that, this area. And he's like, what's going on? <laughs> um, uh, the blind man sat. He was continually sitting. This was, a, a, this was his practice. He was always there. And then he heard a multitude passing by, and he could hear the commotion. And he asked, and he asked, and he asked, and he asked. He wasn't being heard. And some of the, you know, what we read is, you know, crying out all the louder in some of the translations. We know his name is Bartimaeus from some of the other Accounts, by the way, blind Bartimaeus. And he asked what it meant. And they said, well, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Well, he knew immediately who this was. Jesus of Nazareth. That, that's kind of a title. You know, Jesus is his name, Nazareth, where he came from. And when this Bartimaeus heard this, he says, Jesus of Nazareth. He goes, I'll up you one. Son of David. Jesus, son of David. And, and he calls out the prophecy that was given that David would have a descendant that would come from him that would always sit and rule over the nation of Israel forever and ever. And attached to this son of David were the promises of restoration and hope and healing. Remember when John said, are you the one or we should wait for another? He says, tell him what's going on. The blind are getting their sight. And so when he says, son of David, he's like, I know who you are and I know what you do. And so unlike the, the contrast with the rich young ruler who came looking so great and used a good title as well, good, but he didn't know why he used it. Blind Bartimaeus knows why he's saying son of David. He has a desperate need for the Lord. The rich young ruler did but didn't know it. But this guy is like, okay. So he cries out, have mercy on me. And those who went in front of him, verse 39, warned him that he should be quiet. But he cried out all the more. So they warned him. They kept on warning, shh, shh, quiet, leave him alone. You need to be quiet. Something's going to, you know, they're warning him. But he just keeps crying out over and over and over again. I don't know. In my mind, it's just the way I read it. And it's certainly not in this text. But I just hear a screeching, desperate man that wants to be heard through the multitude. He's just crying out with all he has. And so Jesus stood still, like, all right, you got my attention. And he says, bring him here. Don't you love this? Don't you love Jesus? Bring him to me. Bring him to me. This is, this is Christianity. This is God. That when he sees desperate mankind in need and everybody else is trying to silence him, he stops everything and says, bring him here to me. And this is how the Lord is. When you cry out to the Lord, he hears you. And he listens to you. 
He does not ignore you and he does not pass you by. It was very obvious that this man wanted something and Jesus, knowing it full well, says, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, I want to see. He says, then you see you will. But he makes this statement. He says, your faith has made you well. Your faith. Faith in who? Faith in faith? No, faith in the son of David who could have mercy and could heal. You can heal me because you're the son of David. I've heard about you. I always sit here and I hear people talking and I know the kinds of things you've done. And I want it. But he has faith in the son of David. He does not have faith in his faith. He has faith in a man that has power. The son of God. That good teacher. And he says, I need you to work and move in my life. And immediately he received his sight. And then that last imperfect verb is he followed him. He just is like, he just became a follower. He's just like, I am walking after you. He didn't run and go off and do something else with this, this sight that he now received. Now, you know, the following aspect of this, I think, is meant to stand in contrast to who? The rich young ruler who what? Walked away very sad. This, this one walked alongside of Jesus very happy. And you see the contrast in, in this section. It's, it's interesting how um, the gospel writers took the stories and the events and the teachings of Jesus and compiled them. They're not always chronological. Um, so sometimes we might find the stories in different places, but the principles or the teachings are trying to get across. You know, you can look and as you, if you study it in context and you begin to try and put the pieces together, you can. So how do you have eternal life? Well, you have eternal life. You must be desperate. You must call out to, for mercy. You need to be forgiven. You need me in, my li- in, in life. And, and this, this, the, the opening of his physical eyes is that picture of spiritual eyes being opened up. And in reality, it would seem from what we read here that his spiritual eyes were opened even before his physical eyes. And so the Lord brings that healing to him. The Lord is moved by faith. The Lord is moved by people that are desperate and broken. There is no better way to see God show up in our life than to be desperate and broken like a child and and full of faith. The Lord is a rewarder of those, um, for without faith it's impossible to please him, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And, and you know, um, uh, Psalm 51, you know, David understood that it was a broken and the contrite spirit that the Lord wanted. And so come broken. And we're all broken. <laughs> Some of us know it, like Bartimaeus, like that, that notable sinner that was beating his chest. Some know, like little children, I, we need Jesus, we need to come to him, and some don't know. It's interesting, it's the spiritual, it's the religious leaders, it's those that are noted for their their great, you know, faith and whatever that often missed it in the Gospels. The one thing I didn't say, though, about the rich young ruler and the, the question is like, well, then who can be saved? Well, what does it mean? Well, there, it was a very popular teaching is that if you're rich, 
and you were a Jew and you were keeping the commandments, it's obvious you have eternal life. I mean, just it's obvious. God has favor on you. You're definitely saved because you're rich. So when Jesus is like, wow, it's hard for rich people to enter the heaven. Well, if the rich don't get in, then how do any of us get in? Don't worry about it. I've got it covered. Things are hard for man. They're not hard for God. And, and so here you, you see this, the broken, the humble, the poor, that widow at the beginning of the chapter who has no leverage except she's just going to be persistent like blind Bartimaeus. And so may we learn the beauty of brokenness and may we learn to be desperate for the Lord and to come with full expectation and faith in him. That's how the Lord wants us to come. And, you know, I think the Lord is so often working and moving in our lives to bring us to those places of desperation and where we have faith, when we look nowhere else. I don't know what's happening in your life, but it may be that all that's gone on in the last weeks or months in your life is to bring you to the place of being even more desperate for the Lord, that you would call out to him. And even as a believer, we need to learn this lesson over and over again. Now, if you're here tonight and you don't have eternal life and you've never called out to Jesus, you've ne never been desperate for him to work in your life, and, and you have that awareness that you are a broken person and that you are a sinner, then good news, Jesus died on that cross for you. But he rose from the dead that you can have life too, but you must come to him. There is no other way. There's no other way to be forgiven of your sins other than to call upon the name of Jesus. So wherever you are, in your own desperate voice, call out to Jesus for salvation. He will hear and he will answer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son who's a friend of sinners. He's our friend. Lord, we, we are grateful. And we pray that you would continually make us desperate people. And we never get to the place where we think, I've got it cleaned up now. I've got it all together. But may we be like that persistent widow, that defeated sinner calling out to you for mercy, or blind Bartimaeus wanting to have a touch of mercy for eyes to be opened. 